0: We began our brand new study of Second Peter last week, and it's always fun beginning a new book. We... And I was thinking about it this week, over the last over the last number of weeks, uh, my wife and I have uh, attended a number of graduations, and it's this kind of this time of year. And this particular year, we um, have had a number of our students graduate. And so, uh, we had the pleasure of uh, attending various graduations, some high school, some college, and if you've ever been to a graduation, which I imagine most of you have, whether a student of yours or even your own, you'll kind of notice that uh, there are certain unique traditions that each one has, whether they have some sort of hazing thing or a special announcement or party thing, uh, but for the most part, most graduations are pretty standard. I mean, you kind of know what you expect. Um, I remember going to one graduation ceremony this year, and the speaker said, well, one thing that I want to make sure that this graduation has is a short commencement speech. And everybody cheered, and then he proceeded to give one of the longest commencement speeches I've ever heard in my life. Um, and so, but for the most part, most commencement speeches are uh, and ceremonies are very similar. Uh, typically, you have... a you know, you'll have some sort of awards given at the beginning, and, you know, for valedictorian or certain um, attitude awards or sports awards in the beginning. And then they have the, you know, some sort of well known teacher or a famous politician or famous speaker come up and speak and give a commencement speech. Um, and usually in the commencement speech, they, you know, they encourage you to grow, they encourage you to take what you've learned and make the world a better place and grow as an individual and never stop learning, and that kind of thing. And that's what you would expect from a commencement speech. Um, but one of the speakers that also that I heard this year, he talked about the word commencement and how it was strange that uh, typically when we think commencement, uh, we think, oh, it's the end of the year, uh, it's the, the graduation, the years come to a close. Uh, but the actual word commencement means to begin or the beginnings of things. And I thought that was pretty interesting, because in a sense, if you think about it, the reason why they call it commencement is now, as a student, you've, you've had the training at least up to a certain point. If you're high school, then maybe uh, your college life is about to begin. If you're college, then the, the real world is about to begin, and you're supposed to take the knowledge that you have and then begin life. Um, and so you're equipped to to do whatever you're supposed to do, you know, whether it's uh, be an engineer or be a history teacher or whatever it may be. So once you finish school, that's actually uh, not the end, but the beginning. And as a matter of fact, on most degrees, uh, I even looked at mine, even printed on it after your name, they said the faculty and staff of such and such school grants so and so the degree of whatever. And then after it, it says, And because of this, they have been granted all rights, privileges, and honors that pertain thereunto. So, after you get that degree, it is yours. You've been granted everything that uh, you can get with that degree. It is yours. It will always go after your name. No one can take it from you, unless you cheated or something like that. But typically, that's not the case. It is yours. So, you are granted all the privileges and rights. But how you use those privileges and rights is up to you. People aren't going to take the the privileges and rights and honors and and do the work for you. How you use those rights are completely up to you. And that is what is commencing. Well, this morning we're going to look at a different type of commencement. Something similar. We're going to look and the Apostle Peter talks about commencement. But the commencement he is referring to uh, occurs at conversion. The moment you become a Christian. The moment that uh, your life changes, that you have repented of your sin that you put away the old man and you start putting on the new man, that is also a type of commencement. It's the beginning of your new life in Christ. A new way to to look at the world. A new way to to handle your life. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Because when you become a Christian, you are also granted certain rights and privileges and honors. And once you've obtained them, they'll always be yours. But how you use them is up to you. No one can make you use them. No one can force you to do anything. It is up to you. And that's what we're going to look to this morning. But before we do that, I just want to kind of give you a quick recap of where we're at. Last week, we, we began in 2 Peter, and uh, we saw that uh, this book was written about 68 A.D. from a Roman prison uh, by Simon Peter. And we, and we kind of looked at the man Simon Peter, who he was. Um, and the spiritual journey that he had been on, how he started as a, a simple fisherman in Galilee and how he, he met this man named Jesus who was the Christ and how spending three years of it with him in public ministry, he kind of uh, went from just a, a thick-headed, uh, act first, think later type of guy to becoming a strong, mature guide and leader in the church, a pillar of our faith. And so he greets the church that he he writes to, and he reminded them of things. He reminded them of the blessings that they had in Christ. He reminded them that they had righteousness in Christ, that Christ's righteousness was now their own if they confessed Christ as their Savior. And he also reminded them that that they had grace, that grace was a a daily part of a Christian's life, that grace was given to them so that they could believe, and that that grace was was given to them every day to sustain them, so that they could keep their faith, so that they could um, stand strong in the day. And because of this grace, he said that they also had peace. And he was praying to the Lord that that grace and peace would be multiplied to them. That through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they they would stand strong and have grace and peace. And when he gets to this part about knowledge, he he kind of springs board from from this aspect of knowledge into, um, now that you have the knowledge, now that you have grace and peace, what are you supposed to do to this knowledge, and how is it going to equip you? And that's what he goes into in this passage, and that's what we're going to look at today. Because we know from Scripture that you are commanded to obedience. You're commanded to obey God, you're commanded to deny yourself. And this morning, Peter, he goes into how God has equipped you to do so. God expects you to do it, but He hasn't just left you on your own to, to kind of struggle through it. He's told you how you're to do it, and He's given you the ability, the tools to do so. So let's turn, and we'll begin uh, from the greeting in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll read through verse 4. Peter writes, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So from this, Peter springboards off of this understanding of knowledge, and he says you have righteousness, grace, and peace, but you also have other things from this knowledge. And through this passage, I want you to see three elements of saving faith so that you will trust in the sufficiency of your salvation and be encouraged to grow in godliness. Three elements of saving faith so that you will trust in the sufficiency of your salvation and be encouraged to grow in godliness. And before we get into it, let's let's bow in a quick word of prayer. Father, as we begin to study your word this morning, we are first grateful that you have given us your word. Lord, that it is the word of truth, that it is the authority of how we are to live, and it is our comfort when we need wisdom and guidance. And so we pray, Father, that you would just open up uh, the eyes and the hearts of the listeners this morning, Lord, that that they would be able to apply it to uh, their lives and learn and grow, Father. uh, Just thank you for your grace, and we pray, Father, for your blessing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter goes on and he says, you have knowledge. This knowledge is, you have grace and peace through the knowledge of our uh, God and Savior Jesus Christ. And in fact, to him, Peter, the focus of his life, the the main thing that he wanted to get through to the church is it's all about Christ. It's not about you, it's not about the world, it's about Christ. And he uses, uh, he refers to Christ and, and Jesus three times in the first two verses. And then he continues to refer to him in the following verses. And he discusses what, what is your faith made of? If you have faith, what are the components? What are the elements of it? And the first thing he says is that you as a Christian have power. The first element of saving faith is that you have power. Peter says, he writes in the beginning, verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So the first thing he says is... you. His divine power. And this Greek word for power here is uh, dynamos, which is where we get the, the, the English word dynamite. And, and this is one of Peter's favorite words. He uses it three times in this book, and at least once in First Peter. It's a common word that he used to refer to power. I mean, when we think in English dynamite, we think of just explosive, raw power. Uh, But the Greek word doesn't necessarily always mean it that way. As a matter of fact, it can mean uh, various different types of power. The Greek word could mean uh, power of authority. Like uh, the police have the power to arrest somebody. It could also mean that uh, you have the power as like an ability to do something. Like I have the power to carry... Uh, all the groceries from my car into my place in one load. That's the goal of mine, right? Yes, my wife shakes her head. I have the power. Or at least I desire to have the power. But it can refer to that kind of power as ability. Um, But in this sense, Peter makes it clear on exactly what kind of power he is talking about here. Beginning in verse 3 again, he says, His divine power, and His is referring back to the last person he was talking about, which was Jesus our Lord. So he's referring to the power of Jesus, our Lord. And then, coupled with that, he says his divine power. So, Jesus is divine power. It is clear that what Peter is referring to is supernatural power. The power of God. Power that is surpassed by none. This is the power that, that Peter is speaking of. And Peter witnessed this power firsthand on a number of occasions. He saw Jesus turn water into wine and Cana. He saw Jesus just speak a word and rebuke the, the stormy seas of Galilee. He even saw Jesus' power when uh, the Lord healed the ear of poor Malchus after Peter had cut it off with a sword. He saw Jesus' power, this divine power. But even more importantly, he saw the divine power of God transform his life. Transform his life from this old, this, the old man Simon into the, the rock that is Peter. The saving power of God. The power that only God has to change a sinner into a righteous man through faith. This is the the power that Peter is speaking of. And he experienced it. And anybody who is a Christian also experiences this power. Because it's only possible, salvation is only possible if divine power acts in the life of a person. Because it takes divine power to take a wicked, wretched, sinful heart made of stone to take it out and turn it into a a tender heart of flesh, a a heart that desires to obey God and to seek after God. Because Scripture says that there there is none righteous, no, not one, and that there is none who seek after God. And it is only the divine power of God that enables us to do so. It is only the divine power of God that can take somebody who is dead in their trespasses and make them alive. There is no human ability that we know that can take something that is completely dead and give it life. That is only the divine power of God. And this power is given to us as Christians through the Holy Spirit, the Bible reveals. The Lord makes this clear in Acts 1.8. When speaking to his disciples, he tells them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. He says, When the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power. And they did, and they, had a, they, they became apostles, and they went all throughout uh, Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea and into the utter ends of the world, all throughout Europe, through um, the Middle East, Asia Minor, all of that. And they did marvelous things. They raised the dead, they healed the sick, they performed miracles, they did prophecies, they had power. And it was all because um, they were uh, professing the truth of the gospel, that Jesus indeed was the Christ, that Jesus indeed was God their mighty works were testifying to the truth of the gospel. Because if they were lying, certainly God's divine power would not have been with them. But because they had that power, the world saw that the only way they had that power is if God granted it to them. And therefore, their message about God must be true. And Peter says to you this morning, you have the same power. You have this very power that they have. Now you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, James. Like, okay, I'm a Christian, I, I get it. And I've heard about this Holy Spirit, but I don't really feel like I've had power. I, I've never had a vision or a prophecy. Uh, you know, I, I've never I healed a sick person. I've never been down, down in Pioneer Square and walked up to a homeless person and said, take up your bed and walk. Here, let me buy you some coffee. I mean, how do, what do you mean I have power? Well, indeed, you do have power. But that does not necessarily mean that this power is going to work the same within you as it did the apostles, that power was working the apostles for a different purpose than what Peter is speaking to here. The power you have is not so necessarily you can um, be a testimony to God through miracles, but is given to you so that you can be a testimony of God through a changed life, through a changed life. And speaking of this power, Paul writes in Romans fifteen thirteen, "May the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing." So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So here he says that this power is given to you. Why? So that you can abound in hope and have peace. This power is given to you so that when you face adversity and you think you can't go on, the divine power strengthens you so that you can have hope and that you can have peace. Paul writes again in Ephesians three fourteen through 16 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So then Paul again says, He's given you the power to be strengthened. Strengthened when you don't think you can be strengthened. In your inner being. It's not just, I'm going to have strength through the day, but it's an inner peace, knowing that you can trust in God. And this is the type of power that Peter is speaking about, that you have, that His divine power is within you. And how does Peter say that you unleash this power? He tells you right out. At the end of verse 3, he says, His divine power is granted to you all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The source of your power is the Holy Spirit. But how is it made manifest? It's made manifest through the knowledge of God and His Word. And it's in this, the Word of God, the knowledge of God, this is obviously an important theme to Peter. And he's, tell, he's telling us this for a very important reason. As a matter of fact, the knowledge of Jesus and of God, it's a foundational principle of this entire letter. And you'll see that the, the connection between the power of God and, and, and the Word of God is directly related. It's directly related. And he gives the reason why you have this power. He continues on, and it brings me to the second point. is provision. God has granted you power, but he's also granted you provision. And what do I mean by that? Well, Peter writes, he says, he's given you power. His divine power is granted to us all things... He's, why has He given us power so we have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him? The same power that was given to you that changed you from a non-believer to a believer, the same power that was given to the apostles to do mighty works and miracles was given to you. But it was given to you so that you could do anything to pursue anything in life to pursue godliness. You have the power to do godliness. There's nothing that can stop you because you have this divine power. And this power is manifested through your knowledge of God. The more you know about Christ and the more about you know about His Word, the more power you will have. In fact, we know that His, his Word was given by inspiration through the Holy Spirit. It is authoritative. And the idea of everything in life and godliness is an important aspect to understand. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time here this morning because oftentimes this is something that's it's often overlooked in the churches today, especially nowadays. Because as a Christian, God has told you, you have everything you need for life and godliness. So what is godliness? Somebody were ask you, you know, what, how would you define godliness? What would you think? Well, Easton's Bible Dictionary, I looked it up, it defines godliness as this, the whole of practical piety... Which supposes knowledge, veneration, affection, dependence, submission, gratitude, and obedience. You want to know what you know what godliness is? It's it's living a life after God's standards. It's in a sense living godlike, living in a way that God would have you live, living a life that is pleasing to God. This is God's will for all of His followers. He wants you to be obedient to His Word. He wants you to live a life after His nature. He's told you how He wants you to live. But in doing so, He hasn't just left you to try to figure it out. He has given you the tools to do so. He's given you the power to achieve it. And this power is found through the knowledge of His Word. As I mentioned, God's power and His Word are directly related. They're directly related. This is why pastors are always telling you to read the Bible. All right Here I am. I'm, uh, I'm preaching to you, preaching about reading the Bible. But that is why, when I tell the students during youth group to read your Bible, read it every day, it's not just so that they can uh, please their parents or please me. It's not just so that they can do a little check off on, okay, Lord, I put in my time for the day. No, it's so that they are more equipped to live a life of godliness. Because the more you study the Word of God, the more you study the knowledge of Christ, the more you'll be able to know how to handle life situations. Is it any secret that the people that you look up to and revere for their godliness are the same people who know God's Word and study it often? That they recite God's Word and when they pray, they recite God's Word. It's not a coincidence because they're directly related. The more you hide God's Word in your heart, the more you apply it to your life, the more godly you will be. And he has provided this power and knowledge. But... Just like when you have a degree, God is not going to do the work for you. And the work is hard. I'm not going to certainly tell you that, okay, well, just read God's Word and everything will become easy. No, it's, it's hard work because although you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, uh, you, your nature has been changed, but we still battle the sinful flesh. The problem is oftentimes, because of this, men, people, women in the church, they don't trust in the sufficiency of their salvation. They get saved, but they still struggle with things, and they don 't think that the power that God has given them and the knowledge of the scripture and of Christ is enough to help them live godly lives. and so oftentimes people look for more things you'll see in the news or different movements people are looking for second blessings or anointings or prophecies or prophets to tell them how God wants them to live and to give them instruction. You see that all the time. But Peter here is saying you don't need any of that because God has already given you everything you need for life and godliness. I mean, if you think in your mind how many cults have been started by somebody who claims to be a prophet and arises and say, hey, God has told me new information, information that He's kept from you. Follow me and I'll tell you the real way to God. Well, Peter's saying don't follow them because God has already granted you everything you need to be godly. That means you have the truth. Everything in life Everything that life has to offer, you have the ability to be godly because of what the God has given you. The word in, in this sense, when he says his divine power has granted, that word granted, it, it's in the Greek tense that it's, it's a, a past action with ongoing results and they will always have ongoing results. Right? Think of it as uh, turning on a light or a light bulb. Once you flip on that light bulb, you've done that past action, the results of which are going to be constant. The light's going to be on, the light's always going to be shining. You don't have to keep returning on the light bulb. Once you flip it on, it's there. And so, in the sense that God, when He says He's granted to you, it's been done, and the effects are going to continue. They were continuing on in the early church. They were continuing along in the in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, and they're continuing on today. Christ's light, the knowledge of God, its power and its equipment are being filled today, being seen today. There's no need for some sort of secret or deep knowledge like the Gnostics of of Peter's day would want or maybe the spiritualists or the New Age movement would tell us today that we need secret or deep knowledge. No, everything has already been given to us. It's here. But how you use it is up to you. And another trap that many Christians fall into is that they don't believe that they have sufficient means for their struggles. They they see God's Word and they, they know that Um, that they believe in God, but they struggle through things and think that that just their salvation and and, and the power of the Holy Spirit and God's Word is not sufficient to help them overcome struggles or live a godly life. What people tend to do oftentimes is they separate physical problems from spiritual problems. They kind of like put them in two different categories. And what do I mean by that? Well, what, what people will do is oftentimes they'll look to the Bible, sure, when they're looking for something about God's will or spiritual gifts or maybe, you know, how to live a godly life, beatitudes, that type of thing. But when it comes to maybe physical things like maybe depression or ADD or a myriad of other disorders, well, then they look to the secular world for all the answers. Church, this, this is a mistake. This is a mistake. People start depending on psychology and secular and worldly counselors instead of going to the, to the Word of God to find answers. And certainly there are times where medication is important and needed. But I'll be honest with you, these times typically are very rare. But what the world has done is, is taken these, these rare examples and have made them the standard. So that that's the typical thing. They just assign you medication or they assign you some sort of thing right away. And you've seen it. You've seen, you can't even barely watch TV without seeing some sort of new prescription medication on TV. And then after, at the end, listening to the list of uh, possible side effects, which sometimes can be humorous. These few instances of of rare medical deficiencies have become the standard so that everybody's to think that there's something wrong with them and they have some sort of medical imbalance. I I read in a a 2008 article in this magazine called the Scientific American Mind magazine. It's like a scientific type magazine. They said that 10%, currently 10% of American men and women are taking some sort of antidepressant of some form. And of those people, 50% have had actual no medical testing or no scientific diagnosis for a problem. They just have told their, their general doctor, or family doctor, about some symptoms they have. And so the doctor uh, prescribed it. Or they said, you know, I saw this, this medicine on TV and I'm interested in it. I think it might be for me. And so typically the doctor will just prescribe it. At the end of the article, it said that 75% of people who take antidepressants take it without any scientific support for a need. There's really no evidence that they need it. They just, you know, are struggling with certain things and so they want medicine. But there's no real imbalance in their bodies. There's no real difficulty. And so they are given these medicines to numb down whatever they're feeling and I certainly don't doubt that they're feeling something I firmly believe that they're struggling for something whether it's depression or uh, it could be an eating disorder or who knows what it is I, I certainly believe they're struggling but the thing is the problem is not physiological it's spiritual and what do I mean? well typically a lot of these things what is the cause? what is at their root? if you look at all the different disorders and quote unquote diseases out there what is causing them? I think it comes down to a list of this. These things are caused by guilt, by anxiety, by fear, by pride, lust, selfishness, and lack of self-control. All of those things, church, are spiritual matters. And oftentimes, when you're struggling with spiritual matters, that can have an impact on your physicalness, right? right? Oftentimes, people get ulcers, right? But why do they get ulcers? Because they're stressed out. They have anxiety. Oftentimes, spiritual problems can directly result in physical problems. So, when people have physical problems, I don't deny that, but most of the time, at their root, these are spiritual issues. And Scripture clearly deals with guilt and fear and pride and lack of self-control. These are core issues taught throughout the New Testament. And here, Peter is saying that through the power of God and through His words, you are equipped to overcome those things. You don't need what the world has to offer. God has told you how to deal with them. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Any issue, any problem, any obstacle in life that is inhibiting your godliness, God has given you the power and God has equipped you to overcome. You have His Word and you have the power to obey it. And it's hard. Like I said, I'm not going to say it's, it's, it's easy. Because people struggle with a lot of difficult things. But such is life. Because of our sin, we're going to struggle with things. And that's why it's important to have people who pray for you. That's why it's important to be involved in Bible studies. And talk to your pastor. Have accountability partners. All these things, God has set up the church so that we might be equipped to be godly and to proclaim his name to the world. This is the whole idea that Paul talks about. Putting off the old man and putting on. When Paul talks about that, it's a daily thing. Every day, I'm constantly putting off the old. I'm constantly putting on the new. And it doesn't stop and it won't stop until finally when you reach that day when you die and you're in heaven. And hopefully there's progress. There certainly should be progress, but it's an ongoing battle. So many Christians today depend on worldly wisdom as if the the world could come up with all these understandings that would uh, be more effective than God's. And that's not to say the world has no wisdom. But it's not authoritative As a matter of fact, uh, in the world, there's over 200 schools of thought of psychology, and most of them all contradict one another. They all disagree about how to deal with one way or deal with another way. There's no authoritative way. I mean, how do you know which one's right? Who are you going to go to? Is it just to what happens to work for you? Well, church, we have the authoritative answer, and it's God's Word. And oftentimes, what the world offers, it just whitewashes the problem. My foot hurts. So they give you an aspirin to cover up the pain. But what they're not doing is fixing your broken leg. So you have a broken leg you need to go throughout the rest of your life with a broken leg, continuing to take medicine so you don't feel the pain, but it's not actually getting at the root of the problem, which is the broken leg. And the same thing happens. Yeah, sure, you might be struggling through something and you might have symptoms and so you might take something or go through a class or go through a motivational speaker to cover up these symptoms, but they're not covering the root of the problem, which is sin and spiritual death. And the world has created this idea of a, a victim mentality. It's not your fault. It's about your surroundings and, uh, you know, feel sorry for yourself and just overcome, but you're not to blame. You know, and a good, maybe a good example of this is alcoholism, right? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a thing that's plaguing our, our society today. And they label alcoholism and there's classes. You can go to Alcoholics Anonymous and all these different things. And those are not necessarily bad things, but they've kind of labeled it as it's not your fault, it's a disorder. It could be genetic or your surroundings, Well, you know what? The Bible addresses alcoholism, except it doesn't call it a disease. It doesn't call it a disorder. Scripture calls it drunkenness. And Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled, for this is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it's it's, it's a self-control issue. And you can overcome it. You have the power. And this is not a condemnation for people who might be struggling. There might be people here who have went to different doctors or who might take medication. This is not a condemnation to that, but it's a message of hope that we don't need the world's wisdom because most of the time it's folly. But through Christ, through His Word, we have all the answers we need. We have to examine it, study it, and apply it to our lives. It's it's hope. We have hope. And it's not a surprise that non-believers struggle. Because they're slaves to their sin. Right? No matter what they do, they're going to be stuck. And that's why they go from doctor to doctor, or they'll, you know they're looking for the, the, the answers from Dr. Phil or Oprah, or they, they want to feel good about themselves, but, but there, there's no answers to be found there. But you, Christian, you are free from the slavery of sin, and you can overcome, because God has granted you divine power for all in life, for godliness. You have all you need, but it doesn't mean it will be easy. Because what happens is that oftentimes it's just a lack of knowledge. We don't necessarily know that it's a sin issue until it's made known to us. And once we see, oh, I didn't realize I was sinning when I was doing this. Now I know it and I can root out the sin. I can think about it. Oh, this is a hard thing to do because oftentimes when you say, you know what, I think you just, you're sinning and you just don't know it, typically the response is either a punch to the gut Or, uh, you know, I don't want to talk to you now. But oftentimes, the issue we're struggling with is, is it's just a lack of knowledge and understanding in Scripture. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this well. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a a medical doctor, but also a a famous English preacher from the 20th century. And he writes, he says, We all start by assuming that our knowledge of God is all right. And if someone tells us that this is the first problem, we feel it is almost being insulting. This is surely the central cause of so many of our subsequent difficulties. Namely, that we assume we know God, that we assume that this great knowledge is something at which we start, but my whole suggestion is that this is just where we fail, and fail completely. Because the thing is, what he's saying is that. Oftentimes, once you become a Christian and feel like you've grown up in the church, we have this under—we have this idea as if we know everything there is to know about God. We have this complete knowledge of Scripture, you know. But oftentimes, it's we don't, and we need to, when we're struggling something, we need to examine our life and then look to Scripture to see if there's answers. And you pray, and you talk with a friend, talk to a pastor, talk to a Christian counselor, but don't get offended. Because it's easy to do so. It's easy to say, well, you don't know what I'm struggling with. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm going through. That might be true. But the thing is, God does know. God knows everything. He knows your emotions. He knows your thoughts. He knows where you've been. He knows where you're going. And He has told you, I have given you everything you need for life and godliness. My grace is sufficient for you. I have equipped you. What a wonderful blessing, church. Not only do we have the forgiveness of sin through Christ, but we've been equipped for obedience. And God has given you divine power and provision to obey his word. Because our God is morally excellent, he calls his followers to be morally excellent. And he's equipped them to do so. We have promise, we we, we have we have power, we have provision, and finally we have promise. Along with power and provision, God has granted all believers certain promises. And Peter continues. Verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You have a promise if you're a Christian. And Peter puts strong emphasis. He he calls them wonderful, very great promises. He's putting strong emphasis on how wonderful these promises are. And and part of it is because promises were very important to the Jews, especially in the ancient world. I mean, the whole Old Testament was built off of a promise to Abraham. And they were looking for uh, the fulfillment of a Messiah. And their whole lives were built on waiting, waiting, waiting. Well, the Messiah did come and that promise was fulfilled. But when the Messiah came, other promises were given. And these are the ones that they depended on. And there's a large number of them in the New Testament. New Testament says all believers will have the Holy Spirit, will have forgiveness of sin, will have joy, will have grace, peace, comfort, guidance, wisdom, strength, God's constant presence, and an eternal reward in heaven, just to name a few. Those, church, are very great and precious promises, are they Not? And what is the benefit of these promises? What do they do for us? What do they do for you? Well, Peter tells you. Based on these promises, he says, by which he has granted to us promises, and very, very precious and great promises, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. He gives two, he gives two benefits. And the first is, through these promises, you become morally like God. You are being conformed into His nature. You're not being conformed into His being. That's impossible. He is God. We are human. But we are being conformed into His divine nature in the sense of moral excellence. Of not sinning. Of doing what is right and righteous. The theological word for this is sanctification. It's a process. It begins when you get saved and it continues on until you die. Until you finally see the Lord face to face and that your old self of sin has passed away and that new nature of righteousness is finally complete but it's an ongoing struggle it's a precious promise of hope in the future victory has already been accomplished the same word where he says you have been granted promises it's the same word he used earlier it's, it's a prior action that has ongoing results these promises have been granted and they're going to be fulfilled and they're ongoing promises And so when we fail, when we struggle through things, there's hope for the future, knowing I've got promises from God and He's going to fulfill them and He's giving me power. Even when I'm faithless and struggling, He is faithful, the Bible says. So stand strong, believer. Endure. And this is something, again, like last week, the non-believers, they don't have and they don't understand. They don't understand what kind of hope. How can you do it? How can you strive through this? How can you have this hope? How can you just depend on God? Which leads us to the second aspect of the benefit of these promises. The first is you become morally like God, and the second is you have, with through these promises, have escaped the corruption of the world. Because it's apparent to all that the world is perishing. I mean, just turn on the news. Okay, we've got unrest all over the world. There's earthquakes and there's, there's uh, natural disasters, sure. But even more deadly is just violence and sin and hate that's going on all the time. It's clear and it's not getting better. It's just getting worse. The world is seeking answers, but they're not finding it. And they won't find it because of their sinful desire. They're only addressing the symptoms, but they're not addressing the cause, which is their spiritual darkness. And the unfortunate thing is, for those who are in spiritual darkness, these physical struggles are going through, this is the best that it's ever going to be. This is the most joy and enjoyment of life they're ever going to experience because they're rebelling against the living God. I encourage you, if you're listening and you don't know the Lord, examine your heart, examine your standing, know that you've broken His law and you deserve judgment and punishment. Repent of your sin and go before Him. Let the first promise that you experience from God be that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't let the first promise you experience to be that He will not let the guilty go free. That He will punish the wicked. Because He promises that too. And if you're a believer, then rejoice. Rejoice that you've escaped the punishment of sin and hell. And that no matter what happens in life, this is the worst it's ever going to be. And soon those struggles in life, the things that you're struggling with and that you hope to accomplish, you will one day accomplish. Those struggles will one day fall away and be no more. In heaven where the Bible says every tear will be wiped away. So through this passage, Peter, he reminds believers of the three elements of their faith. That that you have power. And this power comes in the form of God's word and his provision. You have it through the Holy Spirit and he's giving you provision. He's given you all you need for life and godliness. If you're struggling with certain things, examine it. If you're struggling with certain diseases, it it might not just be a chemical imbalance. It could be, you know what, you just need to learn self-control. And you memorize verses to help you and you pray And so Peter tells us we have all that we need for life and godliness. To live a life that is pleasing to God, to be a good witness and to glorify His name here on earth. And now that Peter has established that God has given you the ability to be godly, he now proceeds and tells you how exactly you are to go about doing it. And this is a topic which we'll come to next week. Let's pray. Father, we... Rejoice in the fact that we have the forgiveness of sins through your Son. We are grateful that you have not left us alone in this world, but have saved us and given us power and equipped us to do all we need to obey you and to honor you. Father, I pray for each person here, Lord, that you would continue to draw us closer to you, that you would make us mindful of our sin, that you would grant us wisdom, that we might walk in a way that is worthy of you, Lord, that the world would see us and see a difference in us. Lord, that they would see you in us and give glory to your name, Lord. Father, I'm grateful for all that you've done and I pray, Lord, that you would be with us all this week. Glorify your name through us and we look forward to that day when we see you face to face and our sin is no more and we can enjoy your righteousness and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.